I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Yeah, one of my joys every year is uh, being invited into Hudson High School to present to that uh, humanities class they have that devotes a week to world religions. Uh, and I had an option. Actually, they are meeting uh, in person there, a class of 35 students. And I said, well, I think I'll zoom in for that one. But uh, I, I was a little worried, I have to confess, that maybe it wouldn't have quite the energy it does when I'm there, but uh, it did. Those kids are amazing. So it's always nice to see how that age group responds to, uh, to the Dharma and to a few minutes of meditation that we always manage to fit in as well. So one of these days, maybe they'll come and uh, visit us. Or their teacher, he keeps talking about that too, but he's so busy as... Uh, as Joe Seeholzer can attest to. <laughs> it's tough being a teacher. Well, so tonight, uh, I, I have in mind that, that I will start off with Shahaku, uh, but I'm gonna take a sidebar, which I've been known to do every once in a blue moon. Uh, this time, rather than doing anything too wild and crazy, I'm going to at least stick to official uh, Dharma teachings in the form of another sutra. It's a sutra uh, that has really vital teachings on the matter of non-duality, which is what uh, the opening section tonight from from Mashahaku's text deals with. And as I was uh, preparing this, you know, I was kind of trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this in a way that uh, can help to open it up, make it more accessible to, to most folks. And I realized that uh, if I combine some of the key text from Shahaku with uh, some things from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Uh, that might that might actually do the trick. So I'm going to give it a try at least. So we'll tarry a little bit longer on this section of Shahaku's uh, work, but it's for the purpose because this is so so vital, and it's also so challenging. And the reason it's challenging is because non-duality. By, uh, by definition, you might say, can't be put into words. And the Vimalakirti Sutra, the climax of what we're going to look at from there, uh, really drives that point home in the most forceful way, as you'll see in a little bit. But first off, uh, let's look at, at Shahaku and how he opens this up for us. <clears throat> and he begins with uh, with this non-dualistic take on the notion of time. 
So once again, we keep looping back to Dogen's teachings on Uji. Different text from Mountains and Waters Sutra, but as we've said, they were written at roughly the same time. So each, each of those texts had a, had a strong influence on the other. Uh, and as Shahaku expresses it, this present moment is one with eternity. This, this isn't a new teaching for us. We keep coming back to it, that the eternal is not time without end. It's actually this very moment and the next moment and the next moment. So the eternal is kind of embedded within our day-to-day moment-to-moment life. We're never apart from it. So the eternal is this boundless nature of time and non-dualistic. So the past, present, and future are all present right now. They're not separate. And of course, once Shahaku makes that statement, uh, he has to follow Dogen in terms of bringing mountains into this. So mountains turn back and forth between this moment and eternity. So here, the turning back and forth designates how we how we function within this duality as we do within all dualities. This isn't just limited to time. I mean, precepts practice is functioning within right and wrong or wholesome and unwholesome, both of which, I mean, right and wrong are, are empty, they're void. But we nonetheless work with them skillfully. That's part of our taking on the practice of precepts. So the fact that they're empty, and this is what we're going to be getting to, it doesn't mean they don't exist, that they're not relevant to us. It's, it's speaking about the nature of their existence, the nature of time. Past, present, and future do exist. But it's important to see how the nature of their existence is it takes place at this moment. That the future isn't some separate state that we're moving towards. So along with mountains turning back and forth between this moment and eternity, Now we come to this particular person working with particular things, our day-to-day life. It's our life and it's the objects that we encounter, the people that we work with, deal with. This is the nature of our existence. But this particular action can be the practice of turning between this moment and eternity. 
So when we live our life as the practice of Dharma, we begin more and more to see it in that vein. And one of, the, one of the implications of that shift for us is it, it changes the nature of our relationship to the things and the people that we are interacting with. If we can see the eternal, the ultimate in all things, that doesn't freeze us up so that we can't respond in an appropriate way. Sometimes there's that tendency to, to take that, have that be our takeaway from that understanding that, well, if it's all uh, empty, if it's all part of the ultimate, then there's no differentiation. And what I do doesn't matter. That's not the case here. What I do does matter. And the, what I do and how I do it can, can experience a significant shift if I can see it at one and the same time as both this moment and the eternal. That's the practice, not to just get lost in, in the eternal. That becomes escapism. And that's not what this practice is either. So this final statement uh, of, of uh, Shahaku's before I segue off to the Vimalakirti Sutra, uh, is just pointing out to us that this oneness of the particular and the universal is what Dogen is always trying to show us, always. And it's what Sakito was trying to show us in the Sandokai. And what Dongshan is trying to show us in Song of the Precious Mirror Samadhi. It's, it's the essential teaching of all dharma that the oneness of the particular and the universal is ever present there's no place we can turn where that's not the case okay so now i'm gonna turn to uh the vimalakirti sutra holy teaching of Amalakirti. Uh, I always have a soft spot by heart for this sutra because actually uh, way back in 97 when I found this Sangha and, and Josie Holzer uh, among others and started practicing with them, uh, this was the text they were working with. So this really was the first sutra that I studied. I'd done some other Zen readings, but certainly not sutras. 
you generally, if you were just uh, interested in Buddhism, you wouldn't pick up the Vimalakirti Sutra or the Diamond Sutra or the Lankavatara Sutra to investigate that. You'd pick up Alan Watts, right? <laughs> Something accessible. For the Vimalakirti, it's helpful if you have a teacher to walk you through this. Uh, and the it was my first introduction to an important uh, uh, Dharma teacher. It's a translation uh, with, with an in-depth introduction, which I'm going to be reading from momentarily, by uh, Robert Thurman. Some of you may be familiar with him, although his daughter is the better known member of the family. And I know you've heard, you're familiar with her, Uma Thurman. But uh, Robert, I, I had the privilege of attending a couple of his talks. And uh, not only is he one of the most knowledgeable people around on Dharma uh, teachings, but he's a ball of energy. At least he was back at that point in time. I mean, you literally, when you sat down, in the auditorium for one of his talks, you were looking for the seatbelts because you knew you were gonna be. <laughs> it was like getting on one of the Blue Angel jets to take off. You were gonna. <laughs> and he could cover what I take 40 minutes to cover. He'd probably go through in 10 minutes. It would just be. You go, whoa, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just his style. Uh, just a lovely guy. And uh, so where I want to start with are just a couple of passages from his introduction to this sutra. And then I'm going to turn to the uh, uh, arguably the most important chapter that comes near the end of this sutra, a chapter that's titled the Dharma door of non-duality. Uh, one of the richest uh, few pages of Mahayana teachings you, you'll ever find. So we're, we're just gonna kind of cherry pick a few, sec a few uh, passages from that. But first, Robert Thurman to set it up for us. And this all kind of ultimately ties back to the Prajnaparamita uh, sutras, which means including the Heart Sutra, especially, and also the Diamond Sutra. Matter is not void because of voidness. Voidness is not elsewhere from matter. Matter itself is voidness. Voidness itself is matter. So, I mean, we hear these words or, or similar phrasings of it often enough, but it's important to recognize this, just this opening uh, phrase, matter is not void because of voidness. Just to, and that's our natural way of looking at it. If we really dive in to analyze it, we think, well, why, what makes it void? It, it's kind of a platonic type worldview. It's void because of its void nature, its voidness. Uh, but that's not the explanation. 
because voidness is nowhere else. It's not elsewhere from matter. Matter itself is voidness. They're not, it, this is just another uh, way of giving expression to non-duality. Matter itself is, is a, at its heart. It's embedded within it. It's voidness. And that's true for us too. It's not a characteristic of ours. It's not something we have. It's, it's us to our very core. So we could replace matter with ourselves. I myself am voidness. And voidness itself is me. Is. So that's that's one to kind of like reread time and time again and, and let it really sink in. This is an entry gate to non-duality. And he then says this statement, common in Mahayana scriptures, and we've certainly encountered it often enough, expresses the quintessence of the middle way. And it's also fundamental to the message of Vimala Kirti in this sutra. Instead of matter, the term relativity is another key term of the middle way philosophy. It means that all finite things are interdependent. This is what creates their relative nature. They're independent, relative, and mutually conditioned. I guess relative, that's really what relative is pointing to is the mutual conditioning. If they're re we're relative to all other beings. We're related to them in our very being. We don't have existence apart from that. So this relativity implies that there's no possibility of any independent, self-sufficient, permanent thing or entity. No possibility. An entity exists only in relation to other entities. And furthermore, in the same vein, all things that can be observed, imagined, or conceived by our finite minds are relative insofar as they are limited at least by having a point of contact, hence a relationship with our perceptions or imaginations. So there's the, the nature of the existence of all entities based on their interdependence. But then there's our perception, our sense of things. And that is further dependent upon our filtering of it. We can't experience things as they are. They come through our senses. 
and arise in our consciousness. They're fully dependent upon that. If we don't have functioning eyes, if we're blind, we don't see and so on with the other senses. If there's no light, we don't see, even if we have fully functioning eyes. So the teachers of the middle way see voidness to free, or not see, the teachers of the middle way use voidness to free us from our own conceptualizations. To see our conceptualizations as void, as not having substantial self-existence. They are interdependent just like all things. All negative statements in the teachings of the middle way from, from the scriptures to the systematic treatises of the Madhyamaka by the great masters such as Nagarjuna and his successors do not negate relative things per se, but only their ultimate existence. So again, it's not that they don't exist. It's just that they don't have ultimate existence. They don't have substantial existence. That's what we're pointing to with terms like voidness, emptiness, shunyata. So this sense of ultimate existence is initially attributed to objects by habitual, delusive mental constructions. That's the way we create our, our world, is using that stamp of things, of thingness, of reality. So existence and the ultimate are, are not to be confused one for the other. Voidness, to come back to what Dogen was saying about the eternal, voidness is infinity, which is only a term for the ultimate ineffability which just means inexpressibility. We can't use language to, to get our arms around it. So voidness is infinity, which is only a term for the ultimate ineffability of the relative reality to which we can see no ending or beginning. And... He points out that basically there are two ways of approaching ultimate reality before you, you uh, study Buddhism. Buddhism is the middle way between these two. 
But the two uh, kinds of theory about ultimate reality are nihilism and absolutism. Either everything is relative and nothing has ultimate meaning or there is an absolute. So Buddhism is the teaching of the middle way about the, the universal and the particular always being there, both the relative and the absolute come together. The source for Zen paradoxes, which is what scares Western thought away. They take it as a sign that, uh, that you're barking up the wrong tree. If it's a path that leads you to those kinds of paradoxes. So basically, and this brings us back to what what Shahaku was was uh, saying in in different words. The uh, immediate relative reality is the ultimate perfect reality, is the one and the same. And the reverse is true as well, that the ultimate perfect reality is the immediate relative reality. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form use the language of the Heart Sutra. So it's, it's teachings that, uh, that we're well-versed in, and now the Dharma door of non-duality, just a whole lineup of, uh, of uh, the Buddha's disciples who kind of like, it's almost, you can picture this as, as a lineup and each one, when it's their turn, they step up and they describe a Dharma door of non-duality. So I'm only gonna share a couple of the descriptions. One of the people gathered, included in this gathering is Manjushri. So it's pretty high end. And of course, Vimalakirti is there. And Vimalakirti, just a, a word or two about him. Uh, he's a lay person. He's not one of the Buddhist dis disciples. Uh, he, he actually uh, is a moderately wealthy man, maybe beyond moderate even. Uh, so he's a lay practitioner. But in, as portrayed in the Vimalakirti Sutra, he's as fully realized as Shakyamuni himself. And he's kind of like the original Zen master because he, uh, he delights in uh, Dharma combat. As he's, as he's portrayed in this sutra, Shariputra never liked going to see him because Shariputra, the disciple of the Buddha who was renowned for his wisdom, I mean, he'd get cut to shreds by Vimalakirti. 
So he didn't like going. <laughs> but the Buddha would say, no, you need to go see Vimala Kirti. He's not feeling well. Go go inquire on uh, on his health and see how he's doing. And of course, Vimala Kirti, when they come to make such inquiries, says, it's true, I'm not feeling well. How could I be feeling well when there's so much suffering in the world? That's why, that's why I don't feel well. <laughs> He's the Bodhisattva. So he discourses on that and, uh, and a few other subjects until they get to this chapter. So the first uh, Bodhisattva that steps forth uh, and the names, I've never heard of any of them, so I won't even try to pronounce them. But the first one declares, I and mine are two. If there is no presumption of a self, there will be no possessiveness. We get that, you know, the subject-object duality and what that entails. Thus, the absence of, presu of uh, presumption is the entrance into non-duality. And then uh, skipping a few, the sixth per, uh, bodhisattva to step forward, uniqueness and characterlessness are two. Not to presume or construct something is neither to establish its uniqueness nor to establish its characterlessness. To penetrate the equality of these two is to enter non-duality. So not to presume or construct something, our mental capacities and our fabrications to construct something as being unique or without any characteristics, not unique at all, just kind of generic, so to speak. That's what we bring to it. That's, so to, to refrain from that activity of conceptualizing it, defining it, is to, to uh, enter non-duality. Another one, very germane to, to our practice, to say this is happiness and that is misery is dualism. One who is free of all calculations through the extreme purity of gnosis his mind is aloof, like empty space, and thus he enters into non-duality. The distinction between happiness and misery. Dualistic, it's based on our conceptions, reactions to things. If we just meet things in their suchness, as Shahaka was laying it out, the relative and the universal combined together, uh, then we can transcend this and we enter into non-duality. So with that, I think I'm gonna go ahead and skip ahead to the last two presenters. The next to the last one is Manjushri. When the Bodhisattvas had given their explanations, they all addressed the Crown Prince Manjushri. Manjushri, what is the Bodhisattva's entrance into non-duality? To which he replied, good sirs, you have all spoken well. Nevertheless, all your explanations are themselves dualistic. To know no one teaching 
to express nothing, to say nothing, to explain nothing, to announce nothing, to indicate nothing, and to designate nothing. That is the entrance into non-duality. Yeah. We're at Bodhidharma's teaching beyond words and scriptures can't be spoken of. That's the entrance into non-duality. But Manjushri wasn't the last word on this. Although in a manner of speaking, actually he was. Then the crown prince Manjushri said to Vimalakirti, we have all given our own teachings, noble sir. Now may you elucidate the teaching of the entrance into the principle of non-duality. Thereupon, the Vimalakirti kept his silence, saying nothing at all. The crown prince Manjushri applauded Vimalakirti. Excellent, excellent, noble sir. This is indeed the entrance into the non-duality of the bodhisattvas. Here there is no use for syllables, sounds, and ideas. So for those of you familiar with uh, verses from the faith mind, you know, the ending of the verses on the faith mind, words, the way is beyond language, for in it, there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. Which also harkens back to Dogen's comments about time eternal in this moment. But the way is beyond language, pointing directly to the Vimalakirti Sutra. That's where that comes from. So non-duality closely connected, closely tied to the Zen view of, of language and its severe limitations in terms of getting to the absolute. <clears throat> but the non-dual, when we talk about the, the, uh, the relative and the absolute, we still have this tendency to, to want the absolute to, to take over the whole thing. That misses it. That misses it because this, as long as there is an absolute, we're caught in the duality. That was what Nagarjuna, with his uh, philosophical, deep philosophical analysis of emptiness, spoke of is that that's the last stage in a practitioner's grasping and clinging is emptiness. To grasp onto that, that's the ultimate. And as he described it, it's the emptiness of an emptiness that you have to let go of that as well. And it's in that letting go that you enter into this door of non-duality. And that's, that's not an easy door to go through because that's the ultimate letting go. And the ultimate faith in mind, that mind can survive that, letting that go. 
and and not just fall into the abyss actually to discover that the abyss is supporting us we live very well in the abyss with all of this the relative and the absolute always present that if we can enter back into the source as it's called the source of emptiness and the relative conventional nature of reality. And through, through Zazen practice, the practice of non-thinking that Dogen prescribed for us allows us to actually be that, to, to let that come forth by letting go all of our attachments and clinging, all of our being hooked, including by the most sacred hooks, the ultimate hooks, the absolute hooks, the Buddha nature hooks. That's why teachers like Dogen talking about Buddha nature would say one of the most important features of Buddha nature is there's no Buddha nature. That the, one of the most important features uh, going back uh, uh, a few centuries from Dogen to Matsu, you know, if ordinary mind is the way or, or ordinary mind is Buddha, better yet, uh, which was a core teaching of his, but then that was being misused by students. So he had to come out and say, actually the, the true teaching is no mind, no Buddha. Further letting go. Because the sacred hooks were getting set. They thought they had it. I've got the absolute now. Mind, Buddha, I, I'm there. So Matsu, Pulled the rug right out. No. No. If you're going to travel back to the source, that's what it entails. And once you arrive at the source, to use the language of Dongshan's five ranks, now you can freely play among the relative and the absolute because you're not hooked. You can experience things, see things in a clear light before we add all the layers on. And play is kind of what comes forth when we're not hooked, when we're not trying to accomplish something. We can be serious and still be playing. You know, we can see that in the arts. So they're again, great exemplars for us to be serious players. Which is not a bad way to go through life. This precious gift we have. And it's a way that opens us 
to the richness of it, rather than closing all these doors off, which is what the dualistic way of life entails. We're closing doors regularly. And in fact, Shahaku speaks about that uh, a little bit further on, which we're practically there anyway, uh, in terms of, uh, of our acquiring knowledge. So uh, this is probably a good point to segue back to Shahaku. And yeah, we have a little bit of time left yet. So this is a process we, we know all too well. We've all gone through it. Uh, he sees, this is Shahaku, he sees the process of ordinary education, like what the kids at Hudson High School are going through, as being like piling up blocks to make a building of knowledge. When that building is completed, it becomes our prison. because of our dualistic way of acquiring knowledge. And it's difficult to get out, he says. Becoming experts, we close our minds. Suzuki's teachings from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Becoming an expert is not the best thing for us. It does close our minds. That's what knowing does. We have difficulty opening an entrance or window to get fresh air. Lovely metaphor, analogy. We need fresh air, we need circulation. It's okay to create these edifices, but if they're completely enclosed, uh, we can't live there. We need to, to have windows that can open, we need to let fresh air in. And that's where, of course, beginner's mind, don't know mind. We can enter into through the window or the door of non-duality. Otherwise, it is a prison. It really is. And this happens, as he says, for everyone who acquires knowledge. It's just part of the gig. So one aspect of Zazen, he, he, I, I like this uh, metaphor as well. It's, it's like doing massage on our heads to make them soft and flexible. It's like opening the window and getting fresh air to be able to acquire knowledge, but not close, close it up solid. To keep those doors to non-duality in there. And I would even say that the functioning of knowledge of science depends on Otherwise, science can't evolve. It needs the flexibility 
the, the doors of non-duality in order to have deeper insights so it can grow and evolve. And of course, uh, I guess I'll, I'll leave off with uh, uh, a little link to our Zazenkai next uh, Saturday about tradition. Tradition can function much like knowledge in that regard. It's not that we, uh, not to give away uh, what we're going to be talking about, but uh, it's not that traditions just to be completely thrown overboard. But like a body of knowledge, you need some doors and windows in there. If tradition becomes this prison-like structure, uh, then it, it doesn't support life either. So it's finding that middle way, being able to work with both sides, the relative side and the absolute side. And we'll be taking a pretty deep dive into that uh, a week from, from Saturday. So that's, I think, an excellent place to uh, leave off here and uh, open it up for for your questions and comments. Feel free to build in another door or window as, as you think appropriate. Well, well, Dean, thank you for this talk. It's probably one of the most beautiful talks I've ever um, heard. Um, it's really <laughs> You need to hear more talks. <laughs> uh, I've heard a lot of talks in my life. <laughs> well, thanks. It's, it's really the heart of Buddhism. I mean, it's just, and, and at the risk of stating the obvious, the, it seems like um, each of the bodhisattvas was... Um, mentioning they're really going through the five skandhas and how to use each of the skandhas as as a doorway to the the, the non-dual which yeah. then again of course leads you to the heart sutra itself which which says the five skandhas themselves are empty and um anyway you next year you could just send this uh and thank you keith for always recording as you always do because this is uh I think a talk I would definitely go back to. You, you could just send this to Hudson next year. <laughs> <laughs> my my task there is more not giving them a talk, but answering questions. Yeah, not no, right. <laughs> and that was pretty much what all today was. An hour and a half long. And they they are full of questions. It's yeah. it's pretty cool.
I just, I, I thank you for the talk. I, I definitely agree with Joe. This was a special one. It put me in the mood of, or, or in the mind of, I should say, of a quote from Dogen that I jotted down this morning that, from Jundo Cohen's book. And the quote goes, just understand that only life and death themselves are nirvana. There is nothing to be avoided as life and death and nothing to seek and aspire to as nirvana. Then for the first time upon realizing this, you are free from life and death. Nice. Um, I was thinking about the quote as you were talking about all this and I thought, this is what he was saying. Oh. Yeah, hmm. good, good. That, that's funny you should say that, John, because Today, I was struggling in my mind. Um, one of our more Christian family members, anyway, kind of obsession with the literal resurrection of Jesus and, and, and Christianity itself, with this obsession with the literal re resurrection of Jesus. And during your talk, it occurred to me, it comes out of completely not getting that the eternal exists in the moment. And if you realize that, there's no need. There's no need for Jesus to have, to, for, to have risen or not have risen. There's a whole need for that just falls away. Yeah. It's, it's just a perverse misunderstanding of the absolute. And anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, again, it's looking at the absolute as other rather than as yeah. everything. Yeah. You're you're muted, Ranigan. <laughs> there you go. I agree that was a beautiful talk and, and it made so many things crystal clear um, of, of, of a lot of things we've been talking about anyway. But one of the things that you said that I'm particularly interested in and I was madly writing and then I didn't get it all and I wish you would expound a little bit on okay. what And I think it's so important to understand how to play between the relative and the absolute. But what you said is now you can freely play between the relative and the absolute. Absolute. That's when you find, and then I lost the rest of it. That's when you find. Hmm. Huh. And, and then you went on to say opens us to the richness instead yeah. of closing doors. But there was something about that's that's when you find. Hmm. 
I guess I can listen to the tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> See, thanks to Keith again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but can you speak a little bit about that? About um, play, playing between the relative and the absolute. Yeah, because I mean, playing is being totally immersed in this moment, real play, rather than striving for an outcome, like to, if it's a game with a winner or a loser trying to win. But, you know, children, young kids are the, the great exemplars of this. They're examples of just being fully in the moment, playing their hearts out. That's, that's the sense that I'm pointing to this kind of Dharma play. Uh, being able to engage in life that way so that you can still even be serious, but it's in a playful way. It's not about just uh, being uh, irresponsible. Responsibility, not in the heavy uh, uh, loads of baggage sense of that term, but just the ability to respond comes from being fully present in this moment. So playing, you're actually able to respond to the playing of others because you're so fully in the moment. And that's responsibility is the ability to respond to others. And we can do that in a playful way. It doesn't have to be, you know, this puritanical sense of nose to the grindstone uh, you know, and, and if it doesn't uh, draw some blood from you then it's not real responsibility I mean, that's, that's a bunch of BS not at all that's not the kind of responsibility that, that Zen is, is talking about so play actually promotes responsibility when it's done in the vein of bringing you fully into this moment in a joyful way. I think what's interesting about that and captivating to me is that um, to be playful, um, you you have to let go of fear. Yeah. And um, it's to look at it in terms of Zen and, and these teachings, these sacred teachings, it, it, it's so exciting to me because it opens up, it helps me open up to that sense that, um, okay, just let, you know, letting things happen and being curious and instead of being afraid of losing something. Yeah. And um, that's what I think is so interesting about these teachings. Thank you. Yeah, so we're kind of retreating back to our prison that we've built. There's a reason why we build these prisons. You know, they're safe places. <laughs> so it's so it's also a um, it's also truly seeing what's coming up and being the 
and 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 being a conduit of the energy of that moment and, and genuinely responding to what's actually coming up rather than um, knowing in a conceptual way and 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 and, and uh, trying to manipulate the things in that sense. Yeah, having our agenda with it. Yeah, we're directing it. We have a desired end. We're trying to get it to. Uh, Joe, that is so helpful to to use that word conduit. Um, I think it it's it's perfect. Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, if we're about to wind down, I'll, I'll uh, since we've had Christianity tossed into the ring here, I'll put in a plug for Sunday when we're going to be looking at uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who is uh, definitely uh, a bodhisattva. Uh, so uh, a shining example of, of how uh, somebody from a different tradition uh, exemplifies uh, the Dharma teachings so deeply. So it's not, you know, unique to that's creating uh, another prison like duality uh, to create these walls around different traditions. Uh, make sure you got lots of windows and doors there and we'll see uh, hopefully clear evidence of that in looking, uh, taking uh, a short, but hopefully pretty deep look at uh, the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing.